Okay. Well, uh, good day, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's uh, AIAA Los Angeles, Las Vegas section uh, event. It's a hybrid event today. Uh, my name is Jeff Puschel. Uh, I'm the moderator for this event. I'm joining you from my home office in the Santinas Valley uh, of Santa Barbara County, California. Uh, our speaker today is joining us from France. So this is a truly distributed architecture. Uh, our speaker is Dr. Dominique Valentienne, uh, uh, who's going to talk about a long duration lander concept for Venus. Now, in my view, Venus is, is, is uh, a planet that we don't pay enough attention to. It's, it's really the closest planet to the Earth and in some ways, most like Earth. But as you'll hear today, it's also distinctly different uh, from the Earth. So Dr. Valentien uh, uh, is an uh, uh, AIAA associate fellow. Uh, he's also a member of the AIAA Electric Propulsion Technical Committee. Uh, he uh, uh, is really working today as a consultant. Uh, I'm gathering, uh, Dominique, that you probably retired in 2007 and became a consultant after that. So, uh, yes. <laughs> so I, I hope you're having a good time as a consultant. Uh, among other things, uh, Dominique has written a book uh, in French, though, on the world of rocket propulsion, uh, which I, I've heard very good things about. That was published in April of 2015, and uh, I'm sure that would be worth taking a look at. Well, without further ado, uh, uh, let me conclude this introduction and ask you, Dominique, to begin your presentation. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I will go to next slide. This is a table of content. So uh, my study is starting from an earlier work made four years ago on a very complex mission. This is Venus sample return. Uh, from this uh, concept, uh, I issued a very uh, advanced concept for thermal insulation of uh, the Venus lander. I will reuse this principle on this study. Uh, it is very important also for a long duration on Venus to remind the Venus characteristics, especially the day and night duration and uh, the visibility from a given point of Venus surface with respect to Earth. Uh, Next point is the scientific objective. Uh, as you may know, some of them are obvious. Uh, we will to observe the modification of Venus atmosphere in uh, concerning the day and night uh, situation, and also the possible modification of the atmosphere due to volcanic activities. Volcanic activities is not proven for the moment, but it is highly suspected. I am not the only guy to consider uh, long-life surface lander on Venus, and uh, I will present two earlier works, one from NASA and the other one from uh, European Space Agency. The 
Men oh, these two long life surface lander are on cool. What I am proposing is to have a partial cooling of the lander electronics in order to be able to benefit from advanced uh, digital circuitry. So it is necessary to devise an active thermal control of the lander. And you will see this is not that simple because we have extremely narrow margin to ensure this thermal control, even if uh, we are using uh, vacuum thermal insulation to decrease the thermal losses from the Venus environment. Uh, this will lead us to Venus lander architecture, uh, trying to make this as simple as uh, possible. And uh, a few words on interplanetary trajectory, which is quite simple, but the end of the trajectory is more subtle that uh, to have a relatively uh, gentle uh, re-entry, it will be necessary to start the re-entry from a circular low uh, Orbit, uh, circular orbit around Venus. Uh, I will, in the discussion, uh, show that it is uh, highly necessary to use a relay satellite, and I will make a short description of the satellite. So then the conclusion on uh, uh, a few words after that. Uh, next slide, please. The exploration of Venus is known as a very difficult uh, problem because the ground level temperature is around 460 degrees Celsius. Uh, this is probably uh, close to more than 7 to 800 uh, Fahrenheit and 9.2 megapascal, that is uh, 92 atmosphere if you prefer. For the moment, the, at my knowledge, the large, longest duration measurement of Venus surface is around one hour, uh, approximately shared between uh, the last Verena, Venera model from the uh, Soviet Union and uh, the NASA probe. Uh, this, this short time frame is uh, our, uh, excuse me, short time frame is uh, sufficient to perform sample recovery. I will discuss this after. But uh, this is uh, quite uh, difficult. Paradoxally, a long-term surface mission may be more simpler than uh, the sample return mission. Concerning the scientific objective, the mission duration should be at least one Venusian year, that is two Venusian days, that is uh, two cycle night day, and uh, preferably longer one terrestrial year. But it, it should be understood that this mission is extremely difficult anyway. Next slide, please. Uh, Venus sample return. I have proposed this almost uh, four years ago, 
in the frame of uh, an ESA conference called Voyage 2050. The frame of this conference was to devise new scientific mission for the time frame 2035 to 2050. Uh, this uh, proposal was uh, quite complex. Uh, this study has been made before by a jet propulsion laboratory with a single uh, launcher, and this, this was extremely difficult to handle everything in a single payload. So uh, I elected to uh, relax the difficulty by using three launchers. This uh, enabled to use three quadcopter landers because the single point failure is a lander. So if you have three landers, you have a small chance to recover at least one sample. An orbiter, which is designed to return the sample to Earth, and a very complex uh, device also, a balloon holding three stages micro launcher. Returning the sample uh, provided by the quadcopter to the orbiter. To give you an idea of the size of the device, from, uh, I worked uh, years ago on a three stage micro launcher uh, uh, launched from uh, an airplane with a payload of 60 kilograms in uh, sun synchronous orbit. So I, I know that uh, on Earth, with seven tons, you can have something uh, possible. In that case, this is a four-ton micro-launcher. So to hold uh, uh, four tons at six, 55 kilometer altitude at Venus, you need a 4,000 cubic meters balloon, which is quite a big one. And uh, in addition, it was necessary to use a um, really microsatellite to provide links between uh, the balloons, the launcher, and the orbiter. Next slide, please. This is an image. The mission needs three Ariane 6 launchers. Uh, the fairing is almost identical to the one of Ariane 5. So you can see the dimension almost 20 meters in height, uh, 5.2 meters in diameter, and a dynamic maximum diameter for the payload of uh, 4.7 meters. I will not insist on this. Uh, you see the balloon rocket assembly on left, the interplanetary module with the freelanders in the middle, and the sample return orbiter uh, at uh, right. Next slide, please. The heart of the mission is the UEV lander. The idea is to use a quadcopter uh, supplied by uh, uh, lithium-ion batteries and including a fashioned material to provide the cooling. The idea is to take off vertically from the Venus surface and also to land vertically with the quadcopter because the interest is that you can make a soft landing by this way. After sample collection, 
which is probably with a diamond tool, uh, it will take off and operate as a plane to uh, make a rendezvous with the balloon. Uh, the difficulty, as you can imagine, is to have uh, the resistance, the body will be uh, put under vacuum, and it is necessary to provide a protection against local buckling, because uh, under the very high pressure provided by Venus atmosphere, you will risk the buckling of the structure. Next slide, please. This shows the internal uh, part of the uh, quadcopter. The idea is to use a buckling resistant structure, which is uh, titanium forging integrally machined with a second uh, shell. So the two shells bonded together provide a resistance to local buckling with a minimum payload uh, uh, risk. Uh, the isolation is made by polar studs, and the payload is contained in a spherical sphere, which is super insulated. In the past, we have developed uh, space furnaces, and we have made measurement of uh, super uh, insulation thermal conductivity. It is extremely low with around 10 minus 5 watts per square centimeter on Kelvin. This means that uh, for a 50 centimeter diameter payload, you have a radiative thermal flux, which is limited to 26 watts. And the polar stud uh, losses are limited to 25 watts. That is, you will require a cooling power of 50 watts only with this uh, vacuum insulation concept. Next slide, please. Uh, the mission was, the study was not pursued because, as you can imagine, using free Ariane 6 launch, or if you take uh, the US launcher case, three Atlas V launches, plus the development of each uh, spacecraft, you are going to a total sum of uh, two to three billion uh, dollars. Despite the interest of recovering uh, Venus sample, this is obviously too costly, and we have to reorient the work to a long life lander concept. Next slide, please. Some uh, words on Venus characteristics. Perinusian year duration is uh, 224 days, and the Venus sidereal days is retrograde. If you speak, if we speak of Venus solar days, which is interesting for us. This is 116 Earth days. That is, each Venusian day on each night has a duration of 58 days on some hours. Another interesting point, not to be neglected. If you look at synodic periods, that is, uh, the Venus on Earth 
uh, mutual uh, location. This occurs every 583 Earth days, which is five religion days. And this shows, as you can imagine, that it is not possible to maintain the direct link between Venusian uh, point of the Venusian surface on Earth during several months. We could, we could do that for one month or uh, something like that. And the uh, conclusion is you need a relay satellite. Next slide, please. Speaking of scientific objective, as I saw already, the first point on obvious is seismology. This, you have two uh, impact, that is to know the uh, post, pot, potential uh, seism and uh, Venus uh, structure, and uh, to detect uh, volcano eruption. Uh, another point, we, we don't know anything about that, is the ground level atmospheric composition and its composition variation. If you have volcanic eruption, you can imagine that the atmosphere composition will be slightly modified as it has been on Earth. And you can also expect seasonal composition change in between night and day. Of course, ground pressure and temperature will be measured. This is almost evident. And we will see also that it will be interesting to measure wind, wind speed and direction. Wind, ground wind is expected to be in the range of one meters per second. Local soil composition is perhaps less interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. And imagine on the other side could be in very interesting comparing the day images of the cloud cover and in during night possible thunderstorms flashes or glow during Venusian night. Some people think there is a glow on the cloud cover. And last point, but it is one of the most complicated uh, situation is the nephelometer in order to detect uh, volcanic plumes. Next slide, please. Uh, the translation of scientific objective on, on instrumentation. Seismology, uh, this has been proposed by other author. High temperature MMS seismometer could be a relatively simple uh, method. In that case, seismometer is working at Venus temperatures, that is 460 Celsius. Ground level atmospheric composition, if you want to make something extremely thin, you will need a sampling valve to uh, have uh, a few uh, milli cubic millimeters uh, TPN of uh, Venusian atmosphere, followed by a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, which has been developed by uh, NASA for uh, uh, Cassini Wiggins uh, uh, probe. This needs a vacuum pump, like a turbomolecular pump, a small one, 
on uh, uh, vacuum reserve. This is fairly complex uh, system, I must say. It is much simpler to have an MMS sensor, but this will not give you the same sensibility nor the same uh, resolution. Concerning wind speed and direction, uh, an ultrasonic wind sensor could be a very simple solution. Concerning imaging, uh, we don't need to, to use uh, uh, MOVI. And still images will be sufficient. So a scanning mirror, an optical fiber bundle, and a CMOS sensor at ambient temperature will do the job. Nephelometer is much more complicated because you need a, back a laser to measure the backscatter light, an optical fiber bundle, to have uh, an, imaging, an imager system. Next slide, please. Uh, we have not, I have noted two earlier works on long life surface lander. One is LISS from NASA, and the other one is VL2SP, Oxford University, on the uh, sponsorship of uh, European Space Agency, of course. Next slide, please. LISS. You see the image on the, on the right uh, is shown here with a vertical axis wind turbine. The baseline of the platform is uh, supplied by a chemical battery operating at high temperature. And uh, in the case of battery, the life is estimated to 60 days, which is a lot already. The electronics is uncooled and relies on uh, silicon carbide electronics. Silicon carbide electronics are uh, well developed for uh, automo automotive industry, electrical cars, and uh, it has shown the possibility to work at uh, almost 500 Celsius. Of course, the rest of electronics is quite complicated. In, in that case, the uh, transmission power is fairly low, so uh, the authors propose to use a relay satellite orbiting at 70,000 kilometers. As you can imagine, uh, the uh, problem will be not the power electronics, but uh, the measurement on digital electronics. This will be the difficulty. Next slide, please. This is a European proposal. You see the seismometer, which is the main payload. And in that case, it is uh, supplied by an RTG because the author want to have a measurement of at least uh, three months, 100 days, because uh, we don't know what is the frequency of seismic event on uh, Venus. This has been proposed by uh, Professor Colin Wilson, which is a specialist of Venus exploration. The RTG is supposed to provide 25 watts of power for a mass of 24 kilo. 
you will see in uh, that in my study, I propose a much more powerful RTG. Next slide, please. Uh, the high temperature electronics is feasible because uh, some, uh, as some laboratories in uh, Europe or in United States succeeded in uh, developing operating silicon carbide electronics at 500 Celsius. But the difficulty is that in the field of uh, large scale integration components, uh, we need uh, comp onboard computer memories, etc. So the idea is to split the electronic in two parts. High temperature electronics for everything what that is power electronics. Uh, for the radio transmission, uh, it is possible to use uh, vacuum tube electronics like uh, traveling wave tube, which will support uh, 400 uh, Celsius without problem. And uh, classical cooled electronics, for all digital function on uh, CMOS uh, for the camera. Next slide, please. We need a power source to perform active cooling and, of course, to operate the, the payload. We have two possibilities. RTG, uh, in that case, uh, this is something uh, very similar to next-gen RTG used in the uh, United States or a wind turbine as proposed in the US lease project. Uh, we, next slide, please. Uh, concerning the RTG, uh, we, uh, we start the study from the RTG on bark on New Horizon, that is 4 kilowatt thermal power. And in the case of New Horizon, almost 300 watt electrical power. The project after that is Next Gen Model 2, which will provide 400 watt of electrical power for a mass of 55 kilograms. Uh, the problem is that uh, the RTG is designed to operate under vacuum on, uh, in, uh, uh, with uh, 4K, uh, 3K uh, uh, vacuum temperature. In that case, we will need to uh, benefit from the vacuum insulation to have the, the required power. So it will be necessary to house the next-gen model 2 in a cylindrical pressure shell made preferably of nickel alloy because the heat conduction will be fairly good. And of course, it will be necessary to have a lot of fin to ensure the convection cooling of the, of the RTG. Of course, this will add uh, in between uh, 45 and uh, 40 kilograms of uh, supplementary mass. Power decay is not a problem because the mission duration is uh, one year. It, is be, it will be difficult to go beyond that. And the, uh, concerning the pro, uh, uh, 
the source of the RTG. The most obvious is obvious uh, department of energy, but this will uh, require a launch from the uh, from USA. It, it, uh, we have discussion to build uh, RTG in Europe because uh, European uh, uh, companies are, uh, have a stock of Neptunium uh, resulting from the processing of uh, nuclear fuel. And it will be possible to convert this to plutonium 238 by using a neutron spallation source. There is a very powerful neutron spallation source, which is a building in Sweden. Next slide, please. Concerning the wind turbine, I, I made personal studies on this question uh, in the design of a Venusian rover. This is extremely ambitious mission too. The big unknown, unfortunately, the wind speed variation, <coughs> excuse me, on the Venus surface. The wind turbine power is proportional to the third power of wind speed. This is the problem. <coughs> excuse me. Assuming a ground speed of one meters per second, 5 meter rotor is necessary to provide the power uh, in excess of 300 watts. Power we need to operate the active cooling. Next slide, please. It is possible, however, to house a 5 meter diameter uh, rotor in an aeroshell diameter of four meters using a system similar to the folding of a helicopter rotor. But you will see that this is a fairly complicated uh, layout. And so, due to the known, uh, the baseline of the study is RTG. Next slide, please. Concerning the power source, we need also an energy storage. This is not the case of uh, most uh, distant planet uh, probes, because the energy budget doesn't uh, need this. But in the case of this mission, we will need to have a power surge, like for radio transmission or uh, laser nephelometer. We can't forget about the lithium accumulator because the temperature uh, will not be uh, the, even near ambient temperature. The lithium accumulator is a too risky technology. So we will be obliged to use a via device like a magnetic bearing flywheel, which work very well, or uh, super capacitors. Next slide, please. Concerning the active thermal control, uh, the active cooling of uh, cryogenic facility is well known in space. We have uh, three main technologies. Stirling refrigerator, 
which offers the best efficiency. And uh, we will need uh, high efficiency because uh, the power budget is quite limited. Pulse tube refrigerator, which offers the best reliability, which is uh, very, very high use in Europe. Reverse turbo Brayton refrigerator, which offer a very low vibration level, but the po minimum power of reverse turbo Brayton is uh, something like 500 watts to 1 kilowatt. All the systems are used in space for cryogenic cooling, from 300K to 80K or lower. The idea is to translate the temperature range to 460 Celsius to, uh, that is 700 Kelvin, to 300 Kelvin. But the physical principle is the same. Next slide, please. Some, the principle of Stirling refrigerator. You have a compressor using opposite piston frictionless. They are mounted on a, a flat springs. The reliability of this device is extremely high. Uh, the experience is in excess of 10 years unlimited operation. After the, the heat, uh, generated by the compression is rejected by uh, generally a conductive uh, heat exchanger and the main part of the system is the regenerator. This is the part of the system efficiency. So you have the cold finger and a full piston. So the, the cold gas issued from the regenerator displays the free piston and the cooled gas will cooling uh, new times the regenerator which enable to cool the, the gas coming from the opposite piston compressor. The gas is generally helium. Next slide, please. This is an example. This is not a Stirling refrigerator. This is a pulse tube, but the, the general layout is the same. You see at the right the opposite piston system, and at left, left the cooling finger. In that case, the cooling power is 3 watt at 50k for 180 watt, uh, 20 watt, excuse me, electrical power on overall mass of seven kilo. This system is uh, already flown on Meteosat third generation. And it is uh, performing flawlessly. Next slide, please. We have to discuss the efficiency of the system. Actually, the best Stirling refrigerator provides an efficiency which is around 30% of Carnot efficiency. So, if we make a small table, the hot temperature is uh, 750K. The cold temperature is varied for the purpose of the study from 
270k, that is oh. three Celsius ah. below the uh, ice temperature. And uh, I, I made a study up to 90 Celsius. Uh, obviously, 270k is uh, enab enabling the use of ice as a uh, phase change material. This is extremely interesting at uh, uh, power accumulator. But uh, unfortunately, as you can see, the cooling power is too small. Uh, so uh, it is much better to use higher temperature, which enable to have a power around 75 watts. That is 25 excess power to operate the electronics. Uh, sodium could be uh, also a very interesting uh, sub, uh, possibility, but the temperature uh, is quite too high at uh, 353K. We are at around 60 uh, degrees Celsius, which is uh, quite tolerable for uh, uh, space electronics. Next slide, please. So we are rejecting the case of ice. This is uh, uh, unfortunate because ice is very efficient. And uh, sodium or potassium efficient uh, material are uh, on, on order of magnitude less efficient. But this will be interesting to accommodate payload power variation. The Stirling compressor has only one small uh, di uh, disturbing effect. That is, it uh, provides vibration in the frequency range of uh, 30 to 50 Hertz. So it is absolutely necessary to discouple the seismometer from the payload structure. Next slide, please. So uh, we will simplify the architecture with respect to the quadcopter you saw at the beginning. We have no uh, very stringent uh, uh, vague limitation, so we can use a cylindrical pressure shell. This is like uh, uh, the shell of a submarine operating at a thousand meters depth in, on Earth. Super insulation will be also much simpler because it is very easy to make a super insulation form of a cylindrical wall on a flat plate and a, a simple neck made of a very thin titanium tube will support the the payload on the super insulation. So the system is uh, fairly simple. And all uh, electrical and uh, optical feed through will be located at the top of the uh, payload pressure shell. Next slide, please. This show how to integrate the uh, cooler on the super insulation and neck device. Uh, the uh, 
euh, Regenerator, part of the cooler, will be located in the neck. So the temperature gradient is inserted by this way. The compressor and the electronics are outside the pressure shell, submitted to Venus atmosphere. The cold finger from the, re the refrigerator will also cool the phase change material. And at Venus, we have the benefit of uh, natural convection uh, provided to the atmosphere in the uh, payload compartment. And uh, this will be simplify the uh, thermal control. Obviously, uh, the linear motor used in present-day compressor are limited to 100 Celsius, something like that. Fortunately, for all effect thruster uh, development, we have developed, or uh, US company have developed, electromagnet technology, which are compatible with a temperature of uh, 400 to 500 Celsius. So this, this will be a reuse of this existing technology. Next slide, please. This shows a potential lander architecture. On the right, you have the uh, pressure shell protecting the payload with the steering refrigerator hot part on top and on top of it, an antenna very similar to the antennas used on a, a Venera lander, which is a almost omnidirectional antenna. And the RTG is located at the opposite side to avoid uh, to hit the payload. And the annular base will provide a diameter of around two meters. You see uh, strings with, which are uh, necessary to rigidify the system. Next slide, please. This is a top view of the proposed device. The aerosol diameter will be in between three and four meters. The annular ring diameter is two meters. You see the RTG on one side, the payload on the other, and the parachute will be located in the middle, uh, probably below the parachute, you will, you will have the seismometer also. Next slide, please. Interplanetary trajectory. The beginning of the trajectory will be relatively simple. Uh, Oman uh, transfer in between uh, Earth and Venus. And uh, this is uh, very similar to the uh, Venus uh, European Space Agency uh, Venus Orbiter. That is uh, a chemical burn with a propulsion module will provide a delta V of 1.2 kilometers per second. So you are located in a very highly elliptical orbit. The energy of this orbit is too high to uh, have a, a gentle re-entry. So uh, during one year, you will reduce the electrical orbit to a low circular orbit by a combination of aerobraking. This has been made 
on another mission, either in the United States or in Europe, on electric propulsion, because you need to raise a little bit the periapsis. Why is this procedure? This is to decrease the severity of peak acceleration to around 6G. Uh, and this enables to have a very efficient thermal insulation of the cooled uh, system. Uh, to perform the reentry, the propulsion module, which has been used to provide the first delta V, will uh, perform the reentry burn, 150 uh, meters per second, and the orbiter will be destroyed in Venus atmosphere. Next slide, please. We have discussed on the relay satellite. This will be a microsatellite around uh, less than 100 kilograms with a large parabolic antenna pointed toward Earth and another uh, wide uh, aperture antenna pointed toward uh, Venus surface. The orbit will be elliptical with an apoapsis facing the lander. That is, uh, the apoapsis altitude will be discussed uh, after an analysis of the uh, transmission power from the lander. And uh, the apoapsis uh, has the interest to increase the transmission time between the lander and the orbiter. It may be necessary to use electric propulsion to have uh, on a lower apoapsis, lower than 60,000 kilometers, and a higher periapsis to avoid uh, atmospheric uh, drag. Uh, question is uh, communication toward, uh, between Earth and Venus. Because uh, it may be possible to to avoid uh, to have communication when uh, Venus is located behind Sun. Because if we are uh, placing the mission with, uh, within the range of uh, uh, Venus-Earth synodic period, we will have uh, at least one Venusian year to have uh, transmission without uh, major problem. But uh, anyway, it is more uh, prudent to uh, provide the satellite with the possibility of storing several weeks of data. Okay. Uh, next slide, please. So I will return uh, on the conclusion of the Venus sample return because uh, we were uh, uh, confused that uh, the cost will be very high. So the idea was to have an extended life lander. This uh, was written uh, four years ago. And uh, combine the advanced thermal insulation with uh, Stirling cooler. It was proposed a pulse tube, but uh, Stirling has a higher efficiency. Uh, RTG fed. The study shows that it is feasible and uh, much less costly than the sample return mission. And 
if uh, you are looking at the ongoing studies in USA and in Europe, the uh, even if uh, the mission is less ambitious than this one, the first long life lander will probably become a reality in a no so distant future. Next slide, please. Thank you for your attention. And you see an image of Venus with uh, Jupiter on Earth in the background. Thank you very much, Dominique. Excellent talk, fascinating talk. So uh, we, we have time for questions, and uh, I'm going to take the prerogative of the chair by asking the first question. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, in some of our long-range mission thinking uh, here in the U.S., uh, you know, we're, we're looking at the possibility of using uh, the Starship from SpaceX as a launch vehicle. And, of course, it's still in development. Uh, some claims have been made of how much it would cost to launch uh payloads into space using that launch vehicle. I'm wondering whether uh, you think a Starship might uh, offer a low enough cost to enable the sample return mission from a financial point of view. Ah. Uh, obviously, in the case of Starship, the, the payload is extremely important. Um, even uh, uh, we can discuss uh, more or less freely on uh, on this idea, uh, even if Starship is used only in lower orbit. Uh, you can launch around 100 tons from Starship. So uh, you have all the mass necessary to provide uh, even uh, storable propellant uh, upper stage to launch the, the whole vehicle to uh, Venus, to uh, insert it in a Venus uh, uh, orbit. And so you, you will end up with uh, all the device necessary in a low uh, circular Venus orbit, which is equatorial in that case. So uh, it, it is extremely uh, interesting from the technical point of view. All right. Thank you very much. Yes. Well, we'll look forward to uh, seeing how Starship turns out and, and how economical it, it actually turns out to be for yes. launching large payloads. Uh, uh, I think it's very promising, but, and, but we'll see what happens. Uh, so I see we have one question in the Q&A uh, from AC. Uh, and that question is, low transmitter power is milliwatts or microwatts, I think is uh, what he, uh, AC is asking. I think that the transmitting power is uh, in, the one, uh, in the range of several watts. Yes. From I understood from the, the European Space Agency study. Okay, we have another question here in the, the Q&A from an anonymous attendee. And we'll, I think we have more people uh, attending virtually, but I'll, I'll switch back to the, to the on-site uh, uh, attendees in just a moment. So the anonymous attendee 
uh, wants to know how predictable are the Venusian winds and how does this impact the probability of success for a sample return mission? Uh, in the GPL study or in my study, uh, it was clear that the only possibility was to start from an equatorial orbit. Equatorial location for the sample uh, uh, drilling, uh, because this is the only way in the Venusian atmosphere where you can be pretty sure that the winds are located in one direction. If you are not in equatorial orbit, you will never be successful in uh, making a rendezvous with the balloon. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, let me switch to the chat. Uh, okay, so yes, Ken sent a message uh, just saying, uh, raise your hand on Zoom to get the mic access to, to speak out your question. And uh, I think he sent it twice, basically. So yes, that that would be helpful. And let me switch uh, my mode. Okay, so AC had his hand up. But did you yes. have another question, AC? Go ahead. Yes, I did, actually. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that was a, uh, a very interesting presentation. I, I have basically uh, two questions. Uh, number one, uh, by the use of uh, RTGs, Due to the uh, challenge, challenges of the uh, high uh, ambient temperatures, uh, and since RTGs, uh, as I understand, utilize uh, uh, thermoelectric type generators to, uh, to generate the electricity, uh, will the diminish uh, temperature differential reduce the efficiency of the RTGs in, 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 in their ability to provide uh, electrical uh, power? And then the second uh, aspect of, of a question, again, regarding the... Uh, uh, ambient uh, high temperatures uh, using uh, wind turbines to to perhaps generate uh, also electricity. I assume that's uh, that's the, their purpose, uh, and I assume that it would use, for example, permanent magnets in in, in their uh, in the uh, electrical generation. Would uh, yes. are, are are magnets available with high enough Curie points that uh, would retain the uh, their magnetism to to be able to utilize in in uh, in the generators. Uh, thank you. Okay. Uh, concerning the electrical uh, generator of the wind turbine, this is true that there is a problem with the permanent magnets because permanent magnets will be a very simple solution. Uh, for electric propulsion, uh, it was possible to develop samarium cobalt uh, permanent magnet operating much uh, beyond 250 Celsius, which is uh, normally the limit of this technology. But there is still some uh, Celsius uh, missing to reach uh, 460. So in that case, uh, it will be necessary to rely on uh, older magnet technology uh, which is limited to 400, 500 Celsius. Concerning the ferromagnetic material of the motor, the situation is much easier because we can use iron cobalt alloy 
which have a very high uh, Curie temperature, which is 980 Celsius, something like that. So this is why we are using these materials for the magnetic circuit of uh, all the effect thrusters. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, did, did that answer your question, AC? Uh, yes, uh, it, it did. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, so, Ken, do we have any questions in the conference room? Yeah, we do. We do. Okay. Figured <laughs> um, <laughs> I might as well comment, like, but this is perfect. Um, uh, First question was there are there are there higher temp, higher operating temperature options that could be activated once on the surface that would require a lower amount of active cooling uh, measures that are like due to a, a lower delta T um, for temperature and that really aren't considered for most space missions today. Uh, there is practically no. Uh... Uh, no application of uh, high temperature, uh, except from, for propulsion, of course. But we have no practically uh, cases of high temperature uh, uh, scientific instrumentation uh, in a space mission. This is a, a problem. So uh, the only case where you have a scientific instrumentation uh, adapted for high temperature is the case of uh, oil, uh, oil well drilling. You, you need uh, electronic component working at 250 something Celsius. Sorry, what was that last term? I heard the, I heard the temperature, but what was the, for what application? Uh, the, the, the big problem, as uh, you have understood, is the electronics itself. So uh, we have, uh, it is possible to develop power electronics from this range of power, but uh, the difficulty is with uh, in integrated circuitry because practically all circuitry are uh, engraved from silicone and silicone is quite limited in temperature. And for the moment, there is no silicon carbide uh, 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 RF uh, devices, for example. Okay. Um, that's one question. I don't want to block anyone else here, but I, do have, I have two more questions, actually. Um, we'll say two and a half more questions. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. As long as you've got the, the mic, yes. just keep going. Okay. Um, so. Kind of, I just invented this question that I didn't write down, but um, based on that last discussion, um, is there are there any possibilities, and I know that this is internationally fraught at this point, but the Russians have a large amount of experience uh, with their landers as they did in the 1970s um, on Venus. Is there any potential for uh, scientific collaboration or cooperation on that front to leverage the things that they learned in their, uh, in their seven Seven like successful or partially successful uh, missions that occurred from 1972 through the late later 70s. Uh, as far as I understood, the 
Venus uh, Venera uh, Lander Technology uh, was a pressure shell, conventional one, and uh, no uh, advanced thermal insulation for the payload, and this was limiting the life of the device to one hour or something like that. Uh, this is not to to uh, neglect the knowledge of uh, uh, Russian scientists. They are very good. Uh, this is. Uh, let me sub, uh, separate the technical uh, discussion from the political one. For the moment, <laughs> it is difficult to have a relationship with. Uh, Russian people, but uh, on paper, they are extremely interesting. Um, a couple uh, unrelated question to that discussion. Um, so is you're kind of on the topic of, uh, of the uh, relay satellites uh, that was therefore discussed, the microsat. Um, is there two questions I had about that and a two and a half <laughs> follow-up to that um, uh, and a follow-up to that um, with the relay satellite that was discussed uh, earlier uh, is that was I wasn't clear was that the orbiter being kind of repurposed um, and Venus while in orbit and then you know, its orbit changed to actually become a relay satellite um, or was that something that would be deployed from the orbiter or <laughs> was it something that was basically sent to Venus separately? Um, and then uh, regardless of which of those mechanisms, uh, is that something that would be robust enough to support other missions? The idea is effectively to deploy the microsatellite from the orbiter. This will be a passenger of the orbiter. This is uh, the, the interest of having a uh, on initial elliptical orbit. And uh, this, the orbiter, I, I have not discussed this in the presentation, but it may be interesting to have a landing point, which is at some latitude of Venus in downstream of a suspected volcanic uh, region. In that case, the orbit initial orbit will be inclined, but uh, the interest of uh, uh, leaving the, uh, uh, the relay from the orbiter is that the uh, relay satellite orbital plane will contain the location of the lander, if you see what I mean. Um, I think a related question I had about the satellites, or maybe this was already determined from the trade, essentially the trade study that was done. Um, yes. Is it, was it, would it, would it not be possible? Or I guess the better question, would it be possible <laughs> um, to have like two or three micro satellites to, uh, that would be deployed from the orbiter to ensure mm. you know, coverage without interruption? Yes. Uh, the interest of two or three uh, microsatellite is that you have a permanent coverage of the landing point. That's clear. Uh, my idea was that uh, 
bearing in mind the scientific mission, it was possible to operate uh, with a single uh, microsatellite, uh, operating uh, only in the visibility period above the lander. This, this obviously meant that uh, the lander had to have an internal memory to uh, store the data before uh, satellite transmission. And this is the interest of cooling the payload to have the possibility to have a large memory. In the uncooled uh, satellite uh, lander uh, I uh, described before, uh, the electronic scarcity means that you can't uh, make onboard storage at, uh, on the lander. You are obliged to communicate everything that is occurring. Uh, one follow-up with COM and one follow-up with the lander. Um, so on the communications, uh, I, I don't think this was discussed, and I apologize if I missed it in the presentation. Are, are there any concerns about um, the challenges of doing, uh, like, a, of transmitting the data? Uh, how do I, what would I say it? The uplink, sorry, the uplink from the lander to the payload based on atmospheric particulate. Uh, the, I have not discussed in, de in depth this uh, point, but you can imagine that uh, the uh, microsatellite is sending a request to the lander. And in that case, the lander will send back its telemetry to the relay satellite. This uh, oops, sorry. Continue, continue. This seems to me the simplest way. Final question. Um unless it brings up another. Um, I was going to say, I think you said that before. <laughs> I don't know. This is the last one. I okay, keep going. Uh, 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 has there ever been any consideration for these lander missions that there would be uh, that instead of having them exposed to the surface, is there any advantage to actually like putting them subsurface? Uh, is there any way to do that? And would that actually provide any thermal uh, insulation benefits that you would then get in situ versus uh, bringing them along? To be frank, I, I have no idea on this question. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for all the very interesting questions. Ken, do we have any other questions yeah, yeah. in the room? Uh, Mr. Kerr has a question here. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, much of my career has been in scientific research, and so that tells me how naive I am with respect to everything you're talking about. But the number you quoted for expected wind speed is just um, uh, stretching my imagination. I'm having an awful hard time imagining if you have those wind speeds, if, if that's accurate, and you have wind speeds like that, and you have turbulence in the atmosphere, uh, it's hard for me to imagine controlled flight under those circumstances. And it's hard for me to imagine uh, uh, depending on how much you know about the surface, uh, something sitting on the surface without being very, very carefully anchored uh, and and being able to stay in one spot. So it, uh, that, that's 
my imagination is just struggling with that. Mm. Uh, I could uh, propose uh, we are returning to the question of uh, sample return because your, your questions are both related to that. Uh, there is, a, this will need a precursor mission. Uh, the first point you, you, you are stressing is that we don't know how to drill uh, a sample, uh, recover a sample from Venus soil. You can, to do that, you, uh, bearing in mind the quadcopter uh, uh, Technology, we could use the simple precursor mission with only a driller without any ID to recover the sample. But uh, we can use one or two drill technology on the lander and look at what happens before launching the sample recovering mission. Concerning the wind on uh, atmosphere turbulence, this is true. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we could assume that the uh, turbulence is uh, almost uh, zero at near the surface because uh, the density of the atmosphere is around 60 kilograms per uh, cubic meter and the speed is relatively low. So this is not the most difficult part of the mission. The, Difficulty will be at uh, 50, 55 kilometer altitude. And uh, this could be analyzed on, uh, there is some, at least in the United States, some uh, uh, mission proposal to have a balloon with variable uh, uh, altitude. So from the balloon telemetry, you can analyze which is the severity of the turbulence and the turbulence uh, layout. Are you, referring, are you referring to the VAMP, uh, North Oklahoma VAMP project? Uh, as I said, uh, we are no longer pursuing the sample uh, return uh, mission, so I have not uh, studied this point in detail. No, no, I mean the uh, Venus Atmosphere Maneuverable Platform is a North Oklahoma uh, air vehicle project, air shellless hypersonic entry vehicle. It is flowing on the top of atmosphere. Ah, uh, okay. The, uh, the, in my personal opinion, concerning the reentry, we have a problem quite similar to the Mars atmosphere. This is an atmosphere almost uh, uh, completely form of carbon dioxide. Uh, so in the hypersonic regime, you will have the same physics, more or less. Very good. Uh, so any other questions from the room? I don't see any others online. Oh, AC uh, has his hand up again. Go ahead, AC. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, I know this is perhaps uh, uh, really... Uh, uh, untenable, but uh, if if there are any uh, active uh, volcanic uh, lava flows that are uh, that are identified, uh, would it be possible to use uh, those temperature gradients to perhaps uh, generate uh, uh, power for a, for a surface lander? Uh, since I assume the uh, the actual lava itself would be at a higher 
temperature that the than the atmospheric uh, uh, temperature. Uh, thank you. Okay. Uh, be, uh, supposing that we can identify uh, not a lava flow, but a very high point of geothermal activities that it exists on Earth, it will be probably possible to devise a small thermodynamic machine operating from the very hot uh, soil on uh, the atmosphere. Uh, the difficulty will be to identify in advance the location of the high temperature region on the volcano. But uh, if it is possible to, to, to perform a sounding of uh, the at through the atmosphere with microwave, for example, it may be possible to identify such region. So, so on a mission, uh, could could possibly uh, something a recapitulation of uh, I believe that like the like the Magellan uh, 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 orbiter that uh, that did the uh, the uh, surface uh, radar. Uh, yes. uh, topographic identification of, and I believe even even from that data now there seems to be uh, regions that appear to have had uh, uh, lava flows during the uh, during that mission. So so maybe perhaps the orbiter would would be able to uh, incorporate a uh, a preliminary sort of uh, 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 surface radar type of uh, uh, survey to to identify uh, active uh, volcanic regions, uh, some, something along those lines. Yes, it is probably fairly easy to to use Magellan images and to compare them to a new uh, uh, radar uh, mission. Uh, the comparison between the both images will show the uh, region where lava flow uh, have occurred in the past, in the uh, very <laughs> very recent past, I must say. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I have a few questions as well. <laughs> so let me ask those questions quickly. Uh, uh, you, you didn't really indicate how much data you're trying to transmit back to Earth. Uh, I don't, so I don't know what the volume of data would be. Uh, but I'm wondering, in your trade studies, whether you considered uh, the possibility of using laser comm on the relay satellite. Uh, I could see advantages, of course, in terms of data rate, uh, probably in power as well, but also huge challenges related to line of sight stability back to Earth. Uh, did you consider that in your study? Uh, to be frank, no. Uh, we have, uh, I, I have another study uh, ongoing on a very distant uh, uh, mission toward uh, uh, to go outside the solar system limits. Uh, in that case, it, it, it could be interesting to use a laser transmission uh, okay. to another satellite. Uh, we will gain a factor of uh, five in uh, transmission bandwidth with respect to a radio frequency system. But in the, this case, uh, the, the actual technology will uh, allow to perform a transmission from a microsatellite 
to Earth, or more exactly, probably, to Earth satellite. Because uh, if you are operating, uh, receiving the message with a ground telescope, you are limited by the Earth's rotation and by the cloud cover. So it is more interested, interesting, excuse me, uh, to use a relay satellite in geostationary orbit, for example. But it is, it is not excluded, but uh, due to the uh, approximative uh, data rate necessary for the mission, it could be made with uh, RF-Link, classical RF-Link. Yeah, I think you're, you know, I agree with your assessment there. Uh, and I would also agree that if you don't need laser comm, <laughs> you should probably stay with RF uh, comm. Uh, another question relates to the uh, aero braking of 300 uh, kilometer altitude uh, for the uh, the periapsis. Uh, I assume that that number was selected based on uh, measurements of the Venusian atmosphere made by previous uh uh scientific probes that seems rather high for aero braking but then the the atmosphere of venus is quite different from earth certainly and and i wouldn't be surprised if it has significant density up to that altitude uh, to be more precise the 300 over 60,100 orbit is a starting stable orbit as, as you know probably to perform aerobraking, you are activating the chemical thruster on apoapsis to decrease progressively the periapsis. And this is, we, uh, the altitude could be in the range 150 to 165 kilometers. And you have to be very careful when uh, you are uh, doing that because you you can't <laughs> end up with an accidental re-entry yes yes yeah. well thanks for the clarification and i would imagine uh that 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 altitude that you would want could vary according to the solar cycle for example uh and so it's something you'd want to you'd want to measure uh in situ i would think yes this is uh, why the, the aerobraking must be performed in a very careful manner. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, uh, do we have any other questions, either online or, or in the room? Well, thank you, Dominique, uh, for joining us today. Uh, your talk was fascinating and and I'm sure all of us appreciate all the time you took to respond to our many questions. Uh, 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 perhaps we'll meet in person someday, uh, but it, uh, either way, all the best to you as you continue these uh, very interesting studies. Let's thank our speaker again.